fires have been burned. And to the extent that you can make sure that the risk discount that they're applying to buying or buying from you is as small as possible, and you can build their confidence, you're going to sell a lot more uh, and you're going to get a lot more happy customers. This is Outside Sales Talk, the best podcast for outside salespeople. I'm your host, Steve Benson, and we're here to chat with the world's top sales experts so that you can get their best sales tactics to level up your game. Welcome back to Outside Sales Talk. Today, I've got Mike Schultz with us, and he's going to talk about how to become a sales winner with insight selling. Mike, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, by way of introduction, Mike is the president of Rain Group, uh, the director of the Rain Group Center for Sales Research, and co-author of several Wall Street Journal and Amazon bestsellers, including Rainmaker Conversations, How to Influence, Persuade, and Sell in Any Situations, uh, insight selling, surprise research on what sales winners do differently, virtual selling, how to build relationships, differentiate, and win sales remotely. Um, and then uh, the nine habits of extreme productivity, which is coming out in June of 2021, which is exciting. So four, four major be- best-selling books. So that's fantastic. Um, Good thing I didn't put the rest of them on there. <laughs> How many books have you written, Mike? Uh, every one of them that you see behind me. Every one of them that I can see behind you. Well, that's that's a whole lot of books. It's a couple. <laughs> that's a few. That's that looks like about twelve or so. Yeah. Well, there might be. Uh, well, some of them. So a few of the bestsellers ended up being translated into a number of different languages, which is always kind of cool. I didn't even know it was in Russian until someone tweeted it to me from Red Square. But I think <laughs> I think we're at, we're at six right now. Six actors. Okay. Cool. So there, so there's, uh, they're on the shelf more than once because they're in different flavors. They're in different flavors because if you want to read it in Turkish, you can relive the magic one more time. <laughs> well, my uh, my Turkish is not strong. I've got to brush up on that. <laughs> but uh, I think I'll, I'll just stick to English. But um, so, well, tell me, insight selling represents an, an evolution of cons- consultative selling almost. Tell Tell us about where consultative selling was and where it's going. Uh, sure. So if you think about selling a long time ago, it was, you know, the Willie Loman pitch. Hey, I'm going to tell you all about my shoes and I'm going to show you my product. And I literally remember when I, I got started in sales performance consulting, my job, my, my job out of college was a sales performance consultant. Not that I had much to say, but I worked for the senior guy and did all of his research for him and did all of his analysis. And my grandfather said, what's your pitch? What's your pitch? And I said to him, well, we really don't have that much of a pitch because what we're trying to do is solve certain kinds of problems. And he's, he just could not conceive because it wasn't just about what's your pitch. Mm-hmm. So at the time when all of my friends were often senior week on the booze cruise, I was reading spin selling and solution selling and conceptual selling and, and uh, strategic selling and a whole bunch of selling books that were at the forefront of consultative selling. At the time, the basic fundamental formula of consultative selling was not pitch product to get benefits. It was understand need, craft solution that solves need, and you win the sale. So 
for probably the last 30 years or so, Consultative Selling the Book was actually written in 1970, so we're going on 50, but it's really been not just the core selling method, but it's been the, it's been like the belief system, like that's what I do. Except what we, uh, what, what we did in the research for insight selling is we want to understand what we're actually affecting the purchase decisions of buyers, mostly business to business buyers that were making midsize and larger sales. And was that indeed understanding craft solution, um, show how solution solves need and win sale? Was that indeed the, the fundamental formula? Were those the criteria? And we found that those were exceptionally important because if you didn't do them, you lost. However, what we're finding is that if you did them now, those are now the table stakes. They're the, they're the, the ante that you have to do that literally just to get over not a buffoon in selling. So if everyone's over the not a buffoon level, uh, and not everyone is bright enough to do that. Not everyone is, not everyone could literally be that sort of fundamental consultative seller. But if you can, you are just in the game competing against everyone else that's doing that. The big things that have changed is that, you know, it's true with this sort of wash of information that buyers have because of the internet. And I realize it's, you know, it's a common refrain for the last 10 years, but it is, you know, people can get all the information at their fingertips. And right when I started, was when companies were deciding whether or not they wanted to make a website. So I was sort of steeped in that other world. But if you wanted to find out something about a product, you had to go to a conference, get the brochure and talk to a seller. And just all of that stuff has gone away. And buyers, essentially what they need more is to make better decisions and to help and to figure out what they don't know. So I'll give you an example of the change. Seller gets an RFP, request for proposal. Most sellers, what do they do when they get an RFP? If, if, if they want to re respond to it, they fill it out and send it back. But let me ask you, in your opinion, you've, you've seen RFPs, yes? Mm, many, many. Many, many. <laughs> now, when you get them, is your typical reaction something like this? Wow, what a well-written RFP. They certainly wrote out exactly what they should be writing out to get them the highest value, <laughs> best impact. And they're actually even suggesting that they purchase it in a way that is going to make sure that their chances of success are the absolute highest. Is that your initial reaction? Um, no, actually just the opposite. I, I often find myself thinking, I wish the person that was the actual buyer would have at least taken a look at this so that they would kind of be asking the right questions, but that doesn't appear mm -hmm. to have happened. <laughs> yeah, and exactly that's what happens. But what do most sellers do if they want to respond? They just answer the questions. Mm -hmm. What they should do, because the buyer is not necessarily making the decision based on the best information and based on a platform and criteria that's going to get them the best outcome. You just said, normally no. So it's contingent upon the seller to then say, what will get them the best outcome? And can I talk to them and potentially change their thinking about how they're approaching this? so they can make better sense of what they're trying to do and they can have more confidence and understanding that perhaps they shouldn't zig, they should zag to get there. Most sellers don't do that. But if you can literally change and shape the buyer's agenda for action based on seller input, and I say RFP and it's not all about RFPs. And if you're listening to this, it's not, well, I don't get RFPs. I actually just hear from a buyer and we talk about it. 
But if they send you an email, they talk to you, do they always have it right? No, no, the RFP is a proxy for just that they're missing something, something changed. If they'd analyze it a little bit differently, if they do this, is it going to get them the outcome? Oftentimes, if the sellers ask themselves these questions, they know there's a better way and they have to have the sort of intelligent skill and will to talk to the buyers and take a little bit of a risk of changing your thinking about how they should approach things. So that's really where it's going. It's going from sort of understand need, craft compelling solution. And if I get the RFP, it's like, well, they wrote out their needs. So I'm gonna craft a solution. Again, that's table stakes, but the sellers that, and I realize you said at the beginning, uh, Mike Schultz will talk about, you know, becoming a sales winner. That sounds pretty cheesy. But in actuality, what we did was study, it was 731 business to business purchases, literally just comparing what the winner of the sale did differently from the second place finisher. And what they did differently was educated buyers with new ideas and perspectives, collaborated with the buyer and persuaded the buyer they would actually achieve results. And if you unpack those kinds of things, it takes a lot more skill, takes a lot more energy and effort uh, but the sellers that do that, they win so many more sales than the sellers that are just bringing essentially the same common last four decades toolkit to the table. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense to me. It, as a seller, um, is, is there a framework that you would recommend or how, how would they go about figuring out what, how, is, how does a seller go about figuring out what questions to ask to help the buyer ask them the right questions. How, how, do you, how do you go about, or is there a framework or a structure or a way you look at it to, to kind of figure out, here are the questions, here's what I need to understand mm -hmm. about this person to help then, in the, then turn it back around on them and guide them in the right direction. Yeah, in fact, when we're not only just when we're working with sellers, but when we're working with companies, the question is, what's, what questions should sellers be asking? Almost all questioning guides are about doing a thorough needs discovery. That is a good thing. But to get to what you're asking, all you have to do is ask yourself a question. You put it in two columns. What are common things our buyer thinks that don't necessarily serve them well? What do they ask for that don't necessarily serve them well? This is what they think, and this is what they should think. I'll give you an example from training, just because we're having a, a discussion about learning selling. I uh, don't usually give examples about us, but this one's pretty apt. People call us and say, we would like a two-day training on this, on consultative selling, advanced consultative selling, which is what we're talking about, negotiation, winning major sales, strategic accounts, just you know the core things that, that sellers get training on. And they call us for a two-day training. A lot of sellers of training would say, yes, they, I got a call from someone who has a budget and a time and they want to do it. But if you just do a two-day training, it's unlikely you're going to get the change. So if you ask them the question, what outcomes you're trying to achieve? What is it that you want them to be able to do differently? And they say, oh, we're leaving huge amounts of untapped opportunity on the table to grow our strategic accounts. Well, that's not just a you know training on presentation, touch, turn, talk. That is something where you're actually trying to change their behavior. And you, if you're trying to do that, the two-day training could be a huge linchpin in making sure that that happens. But what are you doing for the 90 days after to ensure execution? That's where almost everything falls apart. So, you know, or you can literally say, if you do something for the 90 days that ensures 
there's execution and views this as a change management, not as a training initiative, I think your chances of success are going to be much higher. Oh, well, I didn't think of it like that. I think of training as two-day events because that's what they offer at the executive education center at the major university at my, in my area that everyone respects and pays a lot of money for. Pay a lot of money for it, but it doesn't have a lot of impact. So you can ask yourself like, well, what do they ask for and what do they typically think? Well, they need to think differently about how they implement training and how they organize it so they actually get the result. And then they get off the phone and they say, everyone else sent me a quote for a training. These other guys talk to me about how I can actually achieve my result the best way. That is how you're gonna end up doing it. But if you ask yourself, what do they think and what should they think? You'll quickly see the, the differences and then just you can write out the questions next to it that bring up that particular area. Really uh, a fantastic insight, really. And. I should about, write a book on that. Thank you so much. That's nice to you to say. <laughs> book number seven. Here it goes. Book number seven. Fantastic <laughs> insights by a guy sitting in his COVID office. <laughs> so, so what, what, what about risk? Why is risk such an important part of a buying decision? And yeah. how can how can our listeners as salespeople address risk? in their conversations with their prospects to enhance their probability of winning deals? Uh, yeah, so I mean, that's a, that's a great question. It's something to unpack. And I think that, that people don't think about this that much when they're selling, but it's one of those little nugget areas that if you put it in your head, it can make a huge difference. So I once had this uh, seller that was working with the company and as a part of what we do on the consulting side, we'll do post-mortems. Like, why didn't we actually win that sale? Because you know what every seller says? Oh, we got beat on price or they decided not to do it, which turns out to be a whole load of bull. Because when you actually ask the buyer, they say, yeah, I just told them that the price wasn't right. But the reality is, is I didn't like them. No seller is going to say, well, I was kind of a jerk on the calls and I'm actually not that bright. So he didn't want to buy from me, but to, but, but, you know, I, I can see through him telling me it wasn't in the budget. The, the real reason that they don't buy is often something that you don't hear from sellers. So we talked to the, one of the sellers and they said, I don't get it. It was 200 grand for them to buy the software. And within six months, they were probably going to save 800 grand. That's a 4X ROI with actual hard dollars in savings, not even some you know, revenue maybe scenario that you can't match. We literally just get savings and they didn't buy it. And the savings will continue on like year after year. He just didn't see the ROI case. We talked to the buyer. Why didn't you see the ROI case? He was like, oh, I saw it. I'm not an idiot. I got it. I just didn't believe it. So his perception of risk, look at the 47% we got for this client over here and the 10X ROI that we got over there. Buyers are bombarded with this. So it's like, they all want that. And if you could be assured, if I gave you a buck, you'd give me 10 back in six months, we'd all be you know, multi-billionaires if we knew that calculus and everyone's selling it. But the problem is, is that buyers don't believe you. So they, what, they, what they apply in buying and the sort of fundamental calculus when they buy is, I want that or I need that. I'm buying it from the best choice provider. And when I buy it, it's going to work. 
all sellers buy is focus on the, I want that, I need that. Here's the ROI case. Here's the benefits. Here's the problems that you have. And that I'm the best choice. But they don't focus on the buyer saying, I believe it's going to work out. I don't know how many times I bought something and I've been burned. The vendor was terrible. The product was terrible. The product wasn't a fit. It didn't actually do what they said they were going to do. The company didn't stand behind it. You know, all sorts of different reasons why it's bad. Buyers have been burned. And to the extent that you can make sure that the risk discount that they're applying to buying or buying from you is as small as possible, and you can build their confidence, you're going to sell a lot more uh, and you're going to get a lot more happy customers. So what are some strategies that you use to, to, or you would use, or you'd advise people to use to, to have a discussion where you can build that, that belief in your product with your customers and, and how do you build that trust? Are there, are there strategies that you would use there? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, there's, there's sort of all sorts of things pent up in there. But if I were to summarize a thought about building trust, you know, I would say that you need to be a credible. So know what you're talking about. I was just having a discussion with uh, a business leader who um, I won't say who he is or where he is, but he was the number three guy at a $2 billion company. And he said the biggest thing that he was looking for in his lieutenants and in his, the people that he let into his circle is someone that would say, and I'll, I'll change his name. Someone that'll say, Dave, sticky problem, challenging problem. I got it. I have it. You don't need to be in on it. You do not need to strap on your tool belt and come in here and fix it with me. When you come and peek, there might be a little bit of blood on the floor, but I have that too. So a lot of sellers sit around, I'm going to ask you my questions now so I can then get your checkbook out. And it's kind of obvious, but if you dive in with a certain amount of just competence where it's like, I'm going to help you get this done. A lot of our buyers, so in the sort of list of what separated the winners from the second place finishers, one of them was help me avoid common pitfalls after purchase. A lot of times sellers, I don't want to tell them what could go wrong. That might turn them off. But if I say, uh, Mary, when people buy this, when it works, it goes like this. But when it doesn't work, there are three things that happen. I think it might be a good idea to talk about them in advance to minimize the chance that they happen here. That actually builds a lot of trust. So be credible, be competent, know what you're doing. Know that instead of just, I want you to buy this thing, and I'm going to disappear, but focus first on, I'm going to help make sure that this works. And you don't have to kill yourself making it work. I'm going to kill myself to figure out how to make this work for you. That builds a huge amount of trust. Uh, and then the second thing is be a little bit more straightforward. Don't, don't be shy about the failures that happen. Talk about the failures that happen because most buyers know about those kinds of failures and what actually it looks like when it succeeds and they'll trust you more. More, more virtue of purpose and transparency of purpose. Buyers love that. Especially yeah. if it's real, authentic. Authentic transparency. That, that's, that's a quote for the day. Be authentic and transparent. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think buyers, humans are real good at, at knowing when they're being bullshitted and, and, and being able to uh -huh. see through it. And, you know, I think that uh, some people, I think, yeah, but, you know, some people just are more transparent and, you know, and, and you can tell and you believe them more. 
And uh, that believability makes you willing to, you know, jump into the deep end of the pool with them, right? Yeah, for sure. And and sellers are sellers are tough to figure on this too. Um, I was once hanging out with, uh, so I've, I've been at Rain Group for about 20 years now, but before that, when I was 22, I was at a leadership consulting firm. So I've always been in um, either sales performance or executive education. And I asked a grizzled old leadership consultant after 25 years of doing this, I mean, he worked with Disney, he worked with, um, you know, Delta Airlines, he worked with just big places. Uh, after 25 years doing this, what's the hardest thing? What's the biggest challenge that you still have in sort of, he would work with chief human resources officers and like figuring out human resources. And we were actually fly fishing. He's like, let me think about this for a little bit. Standing in the middle of the river and he says to me, most challenging thing is figuring out when you're interviewing an executive level uh, team member, whether they are the real deal or an articulate phony. And I think the, you know, the, the, the advice that I would have is a lot of sellers are good at becoming articulate phonies, be the real deal. And then you don't even have to worry about the rest of it. And, and what does it mean to you to be the real deal? Cause to me, it means being a true expert in solving the problems that you are selling around and you're a true expert in your, in your prospects business. But what, what <laughs> else, what else is makes up being the real deal? Yeah. So, I mean, I think if you, if you want to be the real deal, uh, I started off talking about our trust model, uh, which you have the, the capability, you have reliability, uh, you have integrity, and you have intimacy. So with the capability or competence, it's that you know what you're doing. That's the technical expertise. If I'm going to give you advice about which 250 workstations to put at the bedsides at the hospitals, I actually know how all of this works together. If I'm an accountant and I'm selling, with us, you're not just going to get accounting, you are going to get a business decision maker on your senior team to help you figure out all of the sticky business issues that you have. And then they end up doing your taxes once a year and asking you if you have any questions and you say, yeah, what should I do about this? And they're like, I don't know, I don't have any experience with that. So they actually, you actually have to have that. Second part is a reliability. A lot of sellers will say, I'll get you that on Tuesday. If they get you that on Tuesday, you start to build that trust and seem like the real deal. Anything where someone has to chase you or you're late, it's just, it's just a question mark. So like, is this person like, you know, are they doing what they should be doing here? You know, do I really want to interact with them? The third one is integrity. And the two parts of integrity for us is transparency of purpose and virtue of purpose actually put them first people can feel that and then the transparency is making sure they know that yeah of course i want you to buy something here but it doesn't really help my reputation if you're not buying in three years if i just got people to buy once it would be a problem so let's sort out now how to make this work for you that way you can that way you'll end up buying from me again and the last part is intimacy which is getting to know someone is that they might be competent they might be reliable they might have integrity but if I actually spend, you know, dinner and then some event with them, you get to really get to know people or you, they flew out to see me before we signed the big deal. Now I realize depending upon where you are and the time you are and the type of business you're in, that may or may not be possible. It may not be possible for public health reasons right now, because we're in the middle of the pandemic, but there are ways to make sure that you can get to know someone 
because the research actually shows that just getting to be liked actually leads to development of trust. So, but being the real deal is, is those four things. Confident, what? reliable, integrity, and getting to know someone well. And what, uh, what tips do you have on being likable? What thoughts do you have there? Oh, tips for being likable. Oh, that's a good one. So I'll tell you something that, um, that we have in our, especially recently, we've done a lot of work and you mentioned virtual selling was one of our books. So I just said, go to dinner, fly out and see them, take them to a game, except you can't really do that sometimes. And sometimes you can't do that at all. So how do you actually build rapport um, online? How do you build rapport in meetings like this? Uh, one of them is simply, uh, well, actually I'll, I'll tell you where it comes from. There was a speed dating study that gave uh, speed daters and they had 20 speed dates each uh, of I think seven minutes and they gave them instructions. One of them was ask at least nine questions and focus on getting to know the other person and then the other one said, don't ask more than four questions across the whole speed date scenario. They counted the questions that people ask. And the correlation was for every question that someone asked, they were likely to get one more date. So if you want to be liked, ask more questions. And the most powerful question they find, and we found this too, is a follow-up question. So if you say, how was your weekend? And I say, good, good. Well, what did you do? Actually, I took my seven-year-old out to the golf course for the first time. Oh, I love golf. I've actually been playing too, and my, my son's four. What was it like taking your seven-year-old out? It's a follow-up question. Instead of just, I'm now asking my cursory, how's your weekend question so I can get to you opening up your wallet and giving me money. Actually seem interested. Mm -hmm. But it, it's basic. Asking more questions is good. And I'll give you, I'll give you one other that... Um, that, that, that's fun, is that a lot of salespeople um, come on a little bit too much, as my mom would say, like gangbusters. Hey, how's it going? It's really great to meet you today. Oh, come on, come on in. This is blah, 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 blah. That's kind of off-putting. So you mentioned before, I'm the director of the Rain Group Center for Sales Research. So I keep abreast of all the psychological research about how people build trust, interact, end up working together, end up collaborating, what they think of each other. Um, and one of the pieces of research, the research is actually, if you get to know someone over the course of the discussion, the people that smiled slow, uh, smiled slower and took longer to smile and took longer to crack were much more liked than the people that were sort of all up, all up in your face and happy. So don't come on like gangbusters. And that smile slower is you can warm up over time. So you might be a little bit more reserved. And by the end, if you give out a hearty laugh and, and, and share something about yourself, that's still appropriate, but might be a little bit more than, oh, it sure is nice out today at 70 degrees where I am. If you smile slower, but then slowly let people know a little bit more about you or ask them questions, um, you're more likely to be liked. That, that makes a ton of sense um, to me, absolutely. Could we, tell me a little bit about um, your thoughts on the buying process and how it's changed over time, particularly how salespeople are engaging 
with their prospects later in the sales process than, than they used to and how, how that affects us? Yeah. So in terms of buyers engaging sellers later in the sales process, um, I know where some of that research comes from. Um, it's kind of a load of crap. And that was mostly to try to sell a product against that. It's not really what we found. As a matter of fact, we found that um, buyers are just as likely to engage sellers early in the sales process than they are late. And uh, in a research study that we did two years ago, I had about 500 buyers. Um, 82% say they preferred to talk to sellers when they are literally in the um, process of conceiving what they want to do, forming a plan for what to solve and how to solve it, trying to figure out what products and services. So well before everyone's like, oh, well, they do all that online, then they talk to each other, then they talk to their research team, and then they talk to a couple other buyers, then they issue an RFP, and they talk to you later, and they say, all you get is one set of questions that everyone gets to read, and then you get to deliver a dog and pony show presentation for one hour, but not an hour and a minute. That's actually still less common that that happens. The challenge is, is that... Um, I think it was 62% of buyers said they don't receive value from the meetings they have from sellers. So frustrated buyers are looking to make better decisions and get advice about what to do. And they'd love to talk to sellers. They're just burned more often than not by lack of competence. So um, how is it different? I mean, kind of in the obvious ways of buyers can get information and they can issue RFPs and they're, you know, 20 years ago, there wasn't purchasing software where, you know, fill out your Ariba system and that's how we're going to buy. But I still think the human condition is, is kind of similar is that people try to figure out what to do when they're conceiving, when they're conceiving how to, whether and how to solve a problem. Uh, then they try to figure out how they might do that. Then they have a consideration phase of who could actually help me do this, they negotiate and then um, contract and move forward. So all of those things are the same. I just think the interplays and the interaction are different in the obvious ways. Like I don't have to meet with you in person. We can meet at any time. There's a lot of things that are global. Uh, I think it's more important these days that you actually have good collateral and information because sometimes that has to sell for you because after your presentation in the old days, they wouldn't well, can you give me six more brochures and I'll mail them along? You send them an email. They're going to send that to 14 other people. And those other people are going to weigh in on your proposal, whether you know it or not. So it's sort of evolving and changing in, in, in subtle ways like that. Um, but, you know, I think the, the way that sellers, the, what, what's actually working for sellers is to apply that insight across the sales cycle actually be good at providing ideas at the beginning. If they come to you with a form set of things that they wanna do, ask them questions that might change that thinking. If they come to you with uh, an RFP and say, I wanna buy these things, is that actually gonna serve them well? If the answer is no, get in there. Sometimes, uh, and this is a place where I think sellers actually miss the opportunity to um, really be great consultants, was in the solution crafting phase. They do this great needs discovery, they gather everything that they're trying to figure out and then they make a presentation about how they're going to how they're going to solve the problem. Here's what real sophisticated sellers do. They say, um, "Hey, I've gotten about halfway there, but there's a couple of different paths that I think we might want to take. Would you be willing to have a virtual collaboration ses session? I'll set up a virtual whiteboard 
and I'll both share with you what we have and ask you questions about what you think is going to work best given your culture, because that's only something that you'd know more than what I'd know. And if we we're going to roll this out, what could we do to make sure it has the best chance of success? You can do something like that, actually collaborate and do insight selling during your solution crafting process. Buyers typically even sophisticated buyers that are, that are used to buying from sellers that make a lot of money and work for well-known companies, they don't get that kind of treatment. And when they do, they really start to trust the seller. They get to know them, intimacy. They get to see their competence. They ran a great facilitated discussion. They know their stuff. They tried to understand me. All of the different pieces, components, and parts come together. And especially even that integrity part. If you say, look, I wanna sell you stuff. I don't know exactly what it's going to be yet. Um, but let's figure out what's going to work the best, and then we'll back our way into putting the pieces together about how we partner to do that. Buyers appreciate that. You actually do that. It's like your virtue of purpose comes through loud and clear. You sit there together and craft it as a team, and then you say, great, I'll, I'll clean it up. I'll write it up. I'll check with our solution engineering to make sure it's actually going to work from a tactical perspective, and then we can we can go over it one more time, see if it's just right before we before we present it out to your three other, three other colleagues. Buyers don't get that. When they do, they literally can't wait to tell us in postmortems about how it went. And that's what shapes are. And by the way, this, this is the kind of stuff in insight selling. We literally just call it advanced consultative selling. Most people can do a certain amount of the basics. It takes a certain amount of willingness and chops to be able to do this kind of stuff. But I know people with willingness and chops that still don't know when and how to apply it. So Absolutely. When, when those things come together, it's, it's, it's kind of magical. Yeah. I mean, it, that definitely resonates with me. Um, and I, I know that you're one of the things you talk about in insight selling was that the value is in the seller, not the product. Mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, something jumped out at me that you just said that 62% of buyers say they don't get value from sales meetings. Um, could you talk a little bit more about how, you know, advanced consultative selling can allow you to, to have your buyers and prospects walk away from a meeting, feel like I really got value right there. Solution crafting meeting that I just mentioned, let's say the seller actually did like knows the buyer's business and knows their own product and just goes in with a somewhat organized process for managing the meeting. What does the buyer think about that seller? It doesn't, I mean, it doesn't feel that great, right? Well, no, if the, if the seller knows the client, the seller knows their own stuff and the seller's organized about how to run the meeting and they run a collaborative solution crafting meeting, for the most part, buyers are blown away. So literally just oh, do, okay. stuff, just I, do I thought, stuff like that. I thought you were implying when you said somewhat organized that they weren't all that at, organized. At but least you mean, somewhat organized. <laughs> you're saying hey, even somewhat gets you over the you, bar. <laughs> you show me a seller that's at least somewhat organized and I'll show you a seller that's probably organized more than the hundred other sellers we're putting them up against. Well, and, and I, I, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons for that too. I mean, you know, I think that uh, a lot of people are running around like chickens with their heads cut, cut off these days, right? Um, oh, not even these days. It's the nature of the dynamic. I'm not picking on sellers, but they're the people that at one o'clock in the afternoon, they get a call. And next thing you know, their whole day has changed and they're working till 10 o'clock at night to try to do something. The nature of the job is that 
you know, they can't, they're not on a three month technology build process here that can be somewhat orderly. Their job is to zig and zag and zig and zag and zig and zag, but it does kind of make you, you know, spin like the Tasmanian devil sometimes, but you just sort of say, I'm going to take an hour and really organize for this one meeting. Most of the time sellers don't do that. And most of the time buyers are really impressed when they do. But like literally, that's how you add value. I know I'm going to sell you something, and I know it's going to be some subset of the subset of these components. But we're going to figure out how to put those components together and then implement those components so it actually gets you the result. That has nothing to do like the product has to be you know have a modicum of you know the foundation of what they need to help them achieve the result. We work with engineering companies. We talk to the buyers of engineering companies. By the time it gets to the the five or four engineering companies left in a, in a bake-off, we ask the question of these companies, who can do the work? Almost invariably they say, well, all of them can do the work. So like an algebra problem, the product itself, the service itself is, is negated. So then it's a question of if they can all do the work. So there are big four accounting firms, right? Mm-hmm. If you're a mid-sized company, you wanted to go public, which of those big four accounting firms can, can give you the advice and have the services to take you public? All of all, them. All of them. <laughs> all of them and pretty well. So if that's the case, if the product or service itself is, um, it gets canceled out because it's on both sides of the equation, what's left to stand out? how you interact with me, how you talk to me, how much you care about my results, how much after I've bought services from so many other people that say that you're going to get such a high level of service from us that, you know, you're, you know, you're not going to be able to, you know, trip down the stairs without us being standing there to catch you. And then they disappear. It doesn't happen. But if you can actually demonstrate in the selling process that we are a cut above for the kinds of things that are a part of our core value proposition, I'm going to demonstrate them now the likelihood that the buyer is going to say that they're the real deal and that the seller is providing value, it's like off the charts. But literally, sellers don't think about this. And it's because of the dynamics, not because they're not bright. It's because of the dynamic. And they're pulled in so many directions, they'll say, I don't have time to do that. But you start to do the analysis on their time. There's plenty of things that you can lop off of most people's plates so they can win deals that are five and 10 times the size of the ones that that are sort of pulling them in all sorts of different directions. Another discussion, which is the topic of the next book coming out, which is the nine habits of extreme productivity. Um, very cool. So w- what about interaction insight versus opportunity insight? Um, I know you talk about that sometime, sometimes. How does opportunity insight breed customer loyalty? Uh, so interaction insight versus opportunity insight, let's just define them. So mm-hmm. when people think about, you know, it actually started with an article in Harvard Business Review, which is, um, you know, to sell in a recession, which is at the time, which was the Great Recession, um, focus on provoking your customers. After that was research was things like insight selling and things like the challenger sale that came out and were, were um, you know, sort of became a, a popular part of the discussion. A lot of that focused on um, sort of like a commercial education, which turned out to be like a, a, a presentation. And that's part of it. And uh, so that's the opportunity insight to say, why don't you sit back for five minutes and I'm going to give you a presentation on something new that you, something noteworthy, something non-intuitive that might change the way you think about how you approach something. There's a place for what we would just call a persuasive presentation. 
But the, the real rich part about insight selling is an interaction insight. And it's less about, let me give you a presentation and more about when the buyer says, I really think when we get A, B and C done, we're gonna be ahead of the game. And most sellers are thinking, I can't wait to sell them A, B and C, that's gonna get me 70% towards my quota. What the seller should be thinking is, he should buy A and he should buy C, but, but my clients that bought B find themselves in a world of hurt more often than not. And what they should say is that A, B, and C is something that a lot of my clients have gone down the path, but having done this for six or seven years here now, I've seen a lot of my clients go down the path of B and have it not turn out the way that they expected. Do you mind if I ask you some questions to make sure that you can avoid some of the things that that, that snagged a couple of the other really smart guys that I know. Most buyers would say what? Of course. Of course. <laughs> now with the, with the sort of craze on challenging, a lot of the people just took that word and said, I'm gonna say like, that's the dumb idea. You shouldn't do that. And don't say it like that. Don't be a jerk. Say, well, it's like other people have had this pain and I wanna help you avoid it. And they're like, yeah. And so then you can dig right in, you have permission. And you can say, all right, so when this actually happens, how's it going to work? When, when we fast forward the six months, what could go wrong? Have you done anything like this before? And then you can say something like, all right, so I appreciate those kinds of things, but you know, have you ever had a strategic account management process that you wanted to implement? Or have you ever tried to get a technology like this or a new system like this in place and have it fall apart? Oh my God, yes, it's awful. Why? And what are we going to do differently here to make sure this one doesn't fall apart? And they say, well, we're going to do B. I'm like, not how you presented it. They say, let me interpret how you presented that and tell me where I'm wrong. And you could just sort of, you put your backbone up a little bit and you're, you're not being a jerk, but you're pushing them out of the comfort zone. So let me play the why this fell apart story in six months, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. What can we do to prevent that? And I said, well, well we, right, so maybe we shouldn't do B or we should do B, but also add F. And you might say, now that's a good idea. All of a sudden, the size of your sale went up 20%, not because you're a good seller and you can say to your boss, like, look, I got him to buy more. You did get him to buy more. But because now in six months, they're going to love you. And they're going to go back and tell the story about how I realize this quote, I realize this proposal is 15% higher than the other two. But I would put our chances of success accepting this vendor versus the other at three times the others. And we have fallen apart before. This is mission critical. Let's not skimp on the last hundred grand here that's gonna make, you know, return millions of dollars in success or be millions of dollars in pain if we don't get it right. Okay, go ahead. So, so yes, you sold more, but not because you can sell, um, you can sell you know, ice cream to Eskimos. You sold more because you actually helped the buyer make a better decision, craft a better solution, solve the problem in a better way. All of your virtue of purpose comes through. And they say, why would I go with someone else? Nobody interacts with me like this. That's the power of interaction insight. So I didn't say, let me set back and, and, and give you a presentation. That has its part. Early in the sale, there's something you might want to consider that you don't know about. Do you mind if I just, you know, tell you a little story about it? Later in the story, it's I have a finalist presentation, even if it's not some weird formal thing where you can only just like hop in for one hour. But they come in and you say, all right, 
Give us 15 minutes to, to let you see how we see the problem, why we're tackling in a certain way, why it's not necessarily the way other people might tackle it. And then we can have a continued discussion about how to make sure if we headed down this path, it works. There's opportunity insight. There's sort of making a presentation. Like here's how to really capture this opportunity. But a lot of the magic happens in interaction insight, just pushing back on buyer thinking where it won't serve them. How are they thinking? How should they be thinking? What question should I ask? What message should I share? That's interaction insight. I love it. So, such valuable stuff to understand. Well, the next uh, next uh, piece of the show here is sales in 60 seconds. So quick questions, quick answers. First question, what key skills do sales reps need to be successful today? Um, they need to be much more productive than they ever have in the past. Organized, focused, ready to tackle their day. And tell me what's a common mistake that you see salespeople make in their conversations with prospects? Common mistake that they make in their conversation with prospects. I'm going to say that they are unwilling to push back on buyer thinking where it won't serve them because they're afraid of rocking the boat. Do it the right way, do it with emotional intelligence, but don't let them make a decision that won't get them potential maximum value. And what's one thing that you teach in every sales training? In every sales training? Oh, okay. Um, a lot of times people leave sales training with all of the questions to ask and all the messages, and they sound really weird when they do it. So we say, if you want this to go well, talk like a normal person. Absolutely. Um, what's the best sales advice that you've ever received in this long, long career starting right out of school as a sales trainer? Oh, the best advice I ever got. Uh, when I was 22, I was at a sales performance consulting firm. Advice about sales. So can I just make some sales? Can I make some calls? Can I do something? They said, sure. I was observed on one call and my coach said, don't ever say this again. And what I said was, is I'm a consultant. I'm not really a salesperson. So selling isn't really what I do, but I can help you figure out blah, blah, blah. He said, you're a salesperson. Don't poo poo being a salesperson. Be proud of being a salesperson. Don't be proud of being a salesperson. Like I can pull one over on people or I can be the articulate phony but be the head of the spear that if you have so much value that you can offer someone else that you literally can't sit in your chair without making sure everybody actually gets that value. You have to be on a mission to bring it out. That's what makes a good salesperson, not someone who's slick. So be proud of it. Don't ever make fun of yourself because you're in sales. That was when I was 22. Absolutely. I, I wish they were teaching this stuff in college, right? I wish it was, a, I wish you could major in this. Uh, you can now. So when, when sales at the graduate school level at uh, major university, and you can major in sales and you get certificates in sales, and that's actually been a change in about the last ten years. 
Let me let me actually ask that question again because I, I don't know if it was your internet or my internet, but it was cutting in and out there. I think mine's good. I'm not sure. I'm on a hard wire with a lot of speed, so. Yeah, my mine should be fine, but um, it it jumped. Maybe it could be Zoom too. Who knows? Yeah. Um, so I'll just ask again, and you know, same answer. <laughs> um, what what should all salespeople do daily to become more successful? What should salespeople do daily? Oh, all right. Here's one. If I ask a senior vice president of sales, I line up a hundred of your salespeople. Uh, can you tell me what you would want each one of them to do today that would drive their greatest success? And he said, yeah, pretty much. And I said, how many of them know what that is? He's like, I don't know, 20%. Make sure they know their greatest impact activity for the day. They can articulate their greatest impact activity and they do that first. And I would say to the senior vice president of sales, if 100 out of 100 guys in your team were actively doing their greatest impact activity, even if they didn't get much else done and did it regularly, he's like, we would have triple the sales. So every day, identify your greatest impact activity. And if you're in sales leadership, make sure your team and you work with your team to identify your greatest impact activity and make sure that they start on that early, not late. Fantastic advice. And as an actionable takeaway, what should the field salespeople listen today do as a first step to get started in insight selling? To get started in insight selling. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say pick up a copy of virtual selling. And I think right now, a lot of people, um, I'm sure if you're listening to this, if you have any experience, like, well, I know how to do some of these things, I've done them. Take a thorough needs discovery for a second. Most salespeople would say, I can do a thorough needs discovery. We just surveyed about 500 or so buyers as to whether or not sellers who sell, who sell to them virtually, not live, do, can do a thorough needs discovery. Only about a quarter of them, the buyer said, can do a thorough needs discovery. So if you want to apply core insight selling, foundational insight selling, advanced insight selling, if you want to do virtually anything, I would say mastering the medium of virtual right now is what you need to do. And you just had a book come out about the, uh, or, or it's coming out in June, I'm sorry, June of 2021, the, mm -hmm. the nine habits of extreme productivity. Uh, yes. tell, give me, give me the, the one minute overview of, of, of what's in that book and why, why people should pick it up. Cause I, I mean, that just sounds so interesting to me. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, productivity is a more important now because a lot of people are working from home and working distributed. So you have to sort of be in charge of your own day and destiny. Uh, but I started looking at productivity stuff about six years ago when I was uh, actually living in a hospital with my son. And I actually had to try to figure out how to work when the amount of time I had each day went from like this to like this. And I had to absolutely positively pick the most important things, hyper-focus and get them done. And if I didn't, if our business failed when we started it, we started our business really around when uh, my son was um, you know, just on his way to being born. If we lost our healthcare, that would have been a big problem because he wasn't well. Um, but a lot of the productivity stuff was about how to get more done and how to be better about your email and how to make sure you calendar your stuff. I needed something that could allow me to concentrate when my heart wasn't in it. And I needed something to figure out how can I actually 
compartmentalize when I have to, when my back is against the wall, because a lot of people are going through hard things and it's well, the productivity device when everything's fine and you can use this tactic or that tactic. But what happens when you can't get over the hump? What happens when you can't concentrate? What happens when the time available goes like this and like this? When you don't need some, some baloney thing about how to manage your inbox, when you need something that you can really do to change how you manage your time and day. So not only can you be extremely productive, but you can actually feel good about yourself and allow yourself to focus and concentrate when other things are hard. So that's the focus of the nine habits of extreme productivity. Uh, and as productivity books go, it's going to be pretty different than, than pretty much anything else I've ever seen out there. Very cool. So sounds super interesting. I mean, that, that just jumped out at me is such a, I, I think productivity is such a struggle right now for so many people with the way the world's structured and, um, and just so many more distractions. And, and so that it's a, it's a great time to approach that problem, uh, kind of in, in what you're describing sounds really interesting. Great. Well, I'm, I'm going to try to summarize what you've taught us today because so many of our listeners are on the road while they listen to this. Um, so first of all, consultative selling is, is, is at this point is just, you know, the basics of what you need to do to stay in the game, right? To be a winning salesperson, you have to take it a step further and help buyers make better decisions and understand what they don't know to ask and what they don't already understand about this path that they're considering going on. You've got to work to educate, collaborate, and consult with your buyers. Ask your buyers or your prospects, what are the outcomes that you're looking to achieve? And uncover what's really, what, what they're really looking to do, what's behind this whole initiative. And then, then that way you can help map them to actually achieving those goals and, and, and unlock value. So it's a way of being a consultative seller with and 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 uh, and just doing 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 more than just consultative selling. It's 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 pushing them without being pushy. Um, salespeople need to address their prospects' perception of risk. They need to build their prospects' confidence so they don't perceive a risk in the first place, and then build trust with the prospect by showing capability, reliability integrity, and intimacy. You can build likability by asking more questions. He had a great uh, example of speed dating. You, you want to make sure you ask follow-up questions. You want to you you be warming things up and not be, you want to do it over time. You want to not be too over the top about being too smiley and aggressive up front, but but uh, smile and open up and, 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 and kind of be warmer and expose more of yourself over time in a natural way to a lot of salespeople can come on too strong, basically, which can try too hard. Um, you want to approach buyers when they're first thinking about a solution to solve their problem. So salespeople should collaborate with buyers to see if this solution is even the right fit for them and help them walk down the, the right path. Mm -hmm. Opportunity Insight focuses on having a persuasive presentation. And you want to go even further by providing interaction insight. 
you want to focus on the consulting, the consultative nature, and, and you want to see how you can better fit in with your buyer's needs by understanding those needs and, and helping them understand mm-hmm. how to get from point A to point B, which you hopefully are an expert in because you, you've seen this a million times, right? This has been such, such valuable stuff. Where, where can, where can uh, readers read more about your work? Where can they... Where can they reach out to you, Mike? Uh, well, first, uh, that was a fabulous summary. If this whole CEO of a high-flying tech company thing doesn't work out for you, perhaps someday you'll have a future as a court stenographer. So good on you. Nice job. <laughs> job. It's, always, it's always, good, always good to have a backup. Um, so it's easy to find us uh, on, on our website, raingroup.com. Easy to find. Uh, you can send me an email directly if you ever need to know something at mschultz at raingroup.com, M-S-C-H-U-L-T-Z at raingroup.com, or um, please feel free to connect and say hello on LinkedIn. But we are we are certainly easy enough to find. Fantastic. Well, Mike, this has been a great episode of the Outside Sales Talk. I really appreciate you coming. Um, it, for the people out there that work in field sales, try out Badger Maps. It's uh, the number one route planner out there and helps you sell 20% more and drive 20% less. And we have free trials, so give it a whirl. If anyone out there can think of any other sales reps that would benefit from learning the skills that Mike has taught us today, uh, forward on this episode to them so they can pick it up too. Take care until next time, everybody. 